we've prayed for our service together, our time together. We've prayed for the offering. We've sung prayers to the Lord uh, in our singing. I want to invite you to pray with me now and specifically invite the Lord to do a work in us through His Word this morning. Father, as we look into Scripture, Your Word, Father, we pray that we would be transformed by it, renew our minds, pull us from being sucked into the pattern of the world around us, and use this passage we're going to dwell on right now, Father, to conform us to the image of Your Son more. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to see a very backwards uh, message this morning, a very backwards psalm. And for those of you who may be here or watching, uh, you're not a believer. This is going to sound completely bonkers. Uh, and it's something we wrestle with as Christians because we're like, yeah, yeah, we get it because we got it in Sunday school class. We got it when we read that theology book. But then when life hits you hard, do we really get it? And the backwards thing of it is whatever distress you're feeling right now, whatever situation has completely sucked all the oxygen out of the room in your life, whatever hardship you're experiencing that makes you question the goodness of God, maybe the existence of God, might be the best thing that ever happened to you. Whatever is crushing you, driving you to despair, might be the best thing that's ever happened to you. We see that all over Scripture, but we definitely see that in Psalm 107. Just look at the first three verses. Psalm 107, and I'm reading out of the ESV. Uh, you don't have to read from the ESV, but here's how it's written in the first three verses. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. Now, as you first read those three verses, you might go, okay, I'm supposed to give thanks to the Lord for His steadfast love, but doesn't a steadfastly loving God keep us from trouble? No. Verse 2, let the redeemed, that means if you're redeemed, you've been redeemed out of something terrible. And you don't get to enjoy redemption unless you're into something that's terrible. There's the beginning peek into the formula. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Say that He is worthy of thanks. Say that He is steadfast in His love. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed out of what? Trouble. And gathered in from the lands. We don't get gathered unless we're first scattered. We don't get salvation unless we're first lost. We don't get to enjoy His deliverance unless we're first in distress. That's the backwards rhythm. We don't worship God because He's kept you from distress. We worship God because He's pulled you out of distress. But to pull you out of distress, you have to be in distress first. It's interesting that this passage talks about what we will forever praise Him for. Verse 1, His his love endures forever. 
And then they, look, they, they know that's true because they look back on what he's redeemed us from in the past. We can always trust his love in the future because he's demonstrated it in the past. And some of us who haven't experienced a real crushing, some of us, mostly teenagers, your life has been pretty good. The worst thing in your life is your parents don't like the person you like. Right? Oh, the world is coming to an end. That's not real trouble yet. And that's why it's hard. That's why it's hard for young people to grasp the intensity of the gospel because it hasn't become intense yet. And some of us are still stuck in that phase. You're 50, 60, 70 years old, and you still, you still haven't really been crushed by something. And so we come together, and there's no tears in the eyes. There's no, there's no oomph in the worship because our rescue is small. The rescue is small because the trouble is small. Or at least we didn't see the trouble for what it was. But the rhythm that Scripture talks about that scriptures replete with, not just this psalm, but definitely this psalm, is that there's a scattering, and then God rescues from the scattering and gathers. Many say that the background to this psalm is the Babylonian exile. Uh, centuries uh, before Christ, when Babylon came in, took over Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and kicked most of the Israelites out. There's the exile, right? And so they have to go live in Babylonian territory. They don't have their temple. They don't have their center of worship. Until 50-some-odd years later, Cyrus, leading Persia, defeated the Babylonians, let the Israelites go back to their land. And so many scholars will say that's the background to this psalm. They're coming in from all these different corners of the globe, all these different situations, and they're regathering. God is bringing them back out of their turmoil, out of their exile, out of their distress. And then what we see here in this psalm, we see four examples of that distress. He, he kind of turns the page. Now you see there in verse 3, he's got four directions. He's gathering them in from the east, from the west, from the north, and from the south. And actually, uh, the south there really should be translated sea. Some people came along and so like, east, west, north, sea, that doesn't make sense. It should be south, and they changed it. But it's south. I mean, it's sea. And the reason why I see is because these four situations we're going to look at come from those four places. From the east, from the north, from the west, and from the sea. And we're going to see those, and we're going to read it. And the first example is 4 through 9. The second example is 10 through 16. The third example is verses 17 through 22. And then the fourth example is 23 through 32. And here's what we're going to do. Okay, especially if you're following along in the ESV, when I stop and say, read with me, I want you to read that verse together with me because those are the verses that are exactly the same in all four episodes, all four vignettes, all four examples. There's two verses in each of them that are exactly the same. And what you're going to see is a pattern that all four examples follow. Wherever they're from, whether they're from the sea, from the desert, from the north, from the east, Wherever they're from, they find themselves in distress. Then they turn to the Lord. Then they're delivered from the distress. Then they give him thanks. So you can think of it DTDT distress, turning, deliverance, thanks. All four episodes. Let's read through them. Beginning in verse 4. 
Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Read with me. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. Okay? He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Read with me. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. There's the rescue. For He satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul He fills with good things. Second example, some sat in darkness and in shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. He bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Read with me. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death, and burst their bonds apart. Here's the rescue. Read with me. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. For He shatters the doors of bronze, and He cuts in two the bars of iron. Third example. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities they suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Read with me. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He sent out His word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Read with me. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of His deeds and songs of joy. Fourth example, some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works in the deep. For He commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Read with me. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and He brought them to their desired haven. Read with me. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol Him in the congregation of the people, and praise Him in the assembly of the elders. You see, in every situation, there is some kind of distress. There are different kinds of distress. They come from different places. And the reason why these different situations match east, west, north, south, as one commentator I was reading, Nancy Walford, pointed out, the first group, they're in the desert lands, they're in the waste, they're from the east. What's directly to the east of uh, Israel? All that wilderness they were trekking through when we were moving through the book of Numbers. So that group represents the group from the east. The group from the west sit in darkness in verse 10. So their situation is a little bit different, but according to this commentator, I think it makes sense. The west is where the sun sets. That's where darkness happens, so to speak. And so you've got a group wandering aimlessly in the desert. You've got a group that's stuck in darkness. This looks like it's a prison imagery. They're in chains. They're behind bars. And then the third group, 
they are afflicted, they are uh, trapped in their own sinfulness, and this is oftentimes uh, where Israel would find themselves when enemies would attack from the north, they are disobeying the Lord, and they would experience oppression from the north. And then, of course, not south, but sea, as all the manuscripts have. And you've got this group that is out there on the water, and the crest of the waves goes up to the sky, the bottom of the wave goes down to the depths, and they're like, we're dead. And God hushes the storm. So you've got four different scenarios. The details are different. The people are different. The dangers are different. But what is the same? The, the, what's the same is the change happens when they call on the Lord. They're in distress. And then what did we all read together? They, they turned to the Lord. They called on Him in their distress. That's what changes things. That call on the Lord is the hinge on which the uh, rescue turns. And then He rescues them when they cry to Him. And their response is thankfulness. Their response is thankfulness. And if you're experiencing a, a, a particular kind of distress... That's the opportunity for God to create in you the thankfulness that, he's, that He creates in His redeemed. Outside of that pain, we don't know that gratitude. Easy to preach, hard to live, <laughs> hard to appreciate. But this is the rhythm that we see throughout Scripture. And this is what the Psalms are telling us about worshiping God. We don't worship Him in a vacuum. We worship Him in a response to something He's done for us. How great has God been to you? How great has God been to you? Do you look back in your past and like, man, he got me out of this, he got me out of that? Or do you look back in your past and like, yeah, I mean, he was there kind of hanging out. I wish he would have done stuff earlier. If he was really active, I guess I could have dodged a couple of those bullets. See, that, that's the distress, and then that's it for the formula for your life. The rest of the pattern's not there. Because you haven't really turned to the Lord and call to him. Some of us turn to the Lord and call to him. There's a distress. And then we do the turning to the Lord. And then maybe he rescues us, gets us out of it. And then the thankfulness isn't there. And what that means is that turning to the Lord wasn't really turning to the Lord, was it? Because those who truly turn to the Lord and then experience deliverance, then extol him, praise him, thank him hard because they recognize what he did for them, and he didn't have to. He did it out of his what? His steadfast obligation, his steadfast love, his loving kindness. And so we appreciate that. A meal never tastes so good as when you are famished. And God is creating that hunger inside of us. So that's why these verses describe such difficulties we're not talking about little things that kind of put you in a little bit of a sour mood. These are life-altering things. They are facing death. The people in the wilderness, they're, they're hungry. They're starving. They don't have water. They don't have food. They don't have a place to rest. They don't have a place to sleep. And how does God respond? He fills their longing. He satisfies them in verse 9. How does He dole out their love on them? The hungry soul is filled with good things. The people in darkness, they are 
alone. They are in prison. They are stuck. They are in darkness. And how does God respond to their cry for help? Verse 16, he shatters the doors of bronze. He cuts into the bars of iron. Why are we getting into metallurgy here? You can't bend that stuff. You can't break it yourself. You can't get out. But to him, it's like paper. He just rips it open. He delivers in grand fashion. But not until we are in that place where the darkness is suffocating us and we what? Verse 13, cry out to the Lord in our trouble. Then he responds by delivering us from the distress. He allows the distress to get us to the point where we have no choice but to cry out to him. And that's where he wants you. Why does Christianity flourish so strongly in communist countries, in in places where they're going to get shot? And we're like, I don't know, Saturday, it was kind of late last night. Because we're affluent. The distress is low, so the gratitude is low. Other places, they recognize how dark it was that God snatched them out of. And no matter what happens in my life, I'm going to worship him. See, big distress, big repentance and calling on to him. Big thanks. Small thanks. Small rescue. Why was it a small rescue? You didn't see the distresses needing God. You were uncomfortable. You didn't like it. but You didn't really see God as your answer. You just saw him as sort of a way out. That's different. That's different than repentance. That's different than the kind of calling on the Lord that this psalm is talking about. So it's not an invitation. All right, God, I'll let you into my life. You can have a little portion of my life. Just make things a little bit easier. This is, I'm going to die. I don't have life outside of you, God. And he's like, now you get it. Now I'll bring the rescue. And then the response to that rescue is a life of thankfulness. You see these four patterns because he's saying this is all-encompassing. Wherever you come from, wherever you go, if God is gathering you in, this is what it looks like. He uses this formula of distress and then turning and then deliverance and then thankfulness. That's what it looks like when the gospel overtakes your life. And he brings them in for those different reasons, to show his love off by satisfying the hungry, by bringing those stuck in darkness, bringing them out into light as they sing songs of joy. Those that are out in the sea, lost, about to drown, He rescues so that they extol him in the congregation of the people. Verse 32. And so you'll see that the causes of the distress are not the same in all four. If you look at the first episode, the people that are wandering in the desert, how did they get there? Why are they there? Whose fault is it? It doesn't say. The next two, it does say. Why are the people stuck in darkness in verse 10? Why are they in affliction and in irons? The answer is verse 11. Look at it. They rebelled against the words of God. They did it. They got themselves there. Why are the people in the third group in trouble? Look at verse 17. Some were fools. There's your answer immediately. (laughs) They're fools, that's why. They're there because they're fools. Through their sinful ways and because of their iniquities, they suffered affliction. And this particular example the affliction is a kind of disease if you've ever been so sick to the point where you don't feel like eating food and the doctor's like you need to eat and you're like ugh, i don't feel like eating they're to the point of death because of that 
How did they get there? Their sins, verse 11. They did it. And just when you start thinking, like, I get it, we're always getting ourselves in trouble, look at the fourth group. Why are they in distress? doesn't say anything about what they did. They went down to sea in ships. Is it wrong to go in ships? Is it wrong to do business, verse 23, on the great waters? They did it all the time. But verse 24 says that the cause of it is the deeds of the Lord. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. The wondrous works there is not the rescue, it's the trouble. Verse 25, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. I remember talking with a Christian once, and he said, well, I don't think the Bible ever says God is ever over disasters. I was like, it's not the only verse either. And I know that's hard to grapple with, but why is God in this particular instance causing the storm? So that they would call on him because they can't call on Poseidon. He's not real. They call on the only Lord who is over all things, this almighty maker that we just sung about. And he delivers them and brings them to a place where they give him thanks. So you see that the cause is not always the same. Sometimes it's your fault. You're reaping what you've sown. You've done some things. You've said some things. You've played a a major part in whatever is happening to you. And that's real. There are consequences for being foolish. There are consequences for being rebellious. There are consequences for ignoring God's words. You weren't taking the Bible seriously for 30 years, and now you feel lost. Well, you know, you let the compass collect dust. But don't you love how this psalm doesn't say, oh, the groups that it was their fault? No promise of rescue. He gives you two of the four that it was your fault, and he still provides rescue because he wants thanks from that person. God is not the type of God that goes, oh, wait, you did it. Too late. He goes, you did it. Do you get it now? I get it now. Come. Let's go. I'll rescue you, and you will praise me. My praise will be on your lips in front of everybody else because I got you out. And it doesn't matter how you got into the situation. The fourth situation, God did it. And so you can't say anytime you're in trouble, you go back, okay, where along the line did I cause it? Maybe you did, but maybe you didn't. That fourth category is a blessing too because we realize God sometimes just shows up in the form of distress. Not because you earned it by your sinfulness. It could have been, but not necessarily. You can be faithful. You can be progressing in your life as a Christian. You've you've conquered sins in your life. You're talking to people about the gospel. You are earnestly seeking the Lord, and then bang, something hits, and you're like, what did I do? Maybe nothing. And that's okay. So the question really isn't, what was the cause? Let's get to the root cause. The question is, what's your response going to be, regardless of the cause? Because even though the causes change throughout the four uh, episodes, events, examples, what doesn't change is the formula. The distress prompts Turning to the Lord, turning to the Lord prompts deliverance, and then deliverance prompts thankfulness. 
Is that your formula? Some of us have the first one, the distress. Now what? Turning to the Lord in sincerity and truthfully. And then what God does, what God does is he reverses situations. It's his MO. You ever, you ever watch like a cop show and they're like, oh, this must be that bad guy. That's his MO. That's his calling card. He always does the crime the same way, right? Your MO is the way you do things. You do things a particular way because of one reason or another. And God has an MO, and that's his MO. He doesn't save people who don't know they need saving. He doesn't rescue people who don't think they need rescuing. It doesn't work that way. And when you see this pattern, God's MO is to save people when they're at their wit's end because that's when he's going to generate the thankfulness out of them because they found there's no other place to go. There's nowhere to turn. I've lost my way in the desert. I can't fix my ship out at sea. I can't reverse the darkness that's looming over me. I'm not in control of the sun. These things are out of my control. I can only turn to the one who's over all things. And so, brother or sister, if you're feeling like you're in a pretty dark place, maybe that's where God wants you. And he wants a certain response out of you from that. That's why I say it could be the best thing that ever happened to you because aside from the sea, the desert, the darkness, the jail cell, maybe these folks never turn. And he wants them to turn and he wants to gather them from all of those situations. And so he reverses our fortunes. You see that in verse 33 to 36, or 38 rather. Watch the reversal. This is, is positive, he turns it negative. And then this thing that's negative, he turns it positive. Verse 33, he turns rivers into a desert. He turns springs of water into thirsty ground. A fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil, evil of its inhabitants. So here you have evil people that don't recognize God and they're enjoying the water, they're enjoying the food, they're enjoying all the nice things in life. And God goes, I know, I reverse it. And then you've got blessed people, the people that are the covenant people of God and they're in deserts, they're in dark places, they're in jail. And God's like, I know. And then they turn to me and I reverse it. He says in verse 35, he turns a desert into pools of water. He turns a parched land into springs of water. The reverse, the opposite. And there he lets the hungry dwell and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing they multiply greatly and he does not let their livestock diminish. See, those who seem prosperous, now they get diminished and those who seemed downtrodden and distressed they don't get diminished they prosper and they multiply the exact reversal and that's the kind of irony that is God's MO that is the kind of thing that God does he uses irony to reverse situations and for your situation to be reversed you want your starting point to be distress not success success will keep you from needing God and that's a dangerous place to be. Ironically, the safe place to be is in the danger because that prompts your need for God and calling upon Him. That doesn't mean we go out looking for it. I'm going to drive without a seatbelt now because maybe I crash, maybe I'm paralyzed. That'll be the distress. Don't go look for it. That's stupid. 
But when God decides to do it, we don't bail on him. We run to him and allow him to use that as our potter to shape us into the vessel he wants us to be. And he does it in reversals. If God works in reversals, you don't want to start from a high point. You want to recognize your low point and allow God to reverse that. You see that when he says that he'll reverse their talk in the next section, 39 to 42. How about when you are diminished? When you are feeling down, like you're, you're brought low? Well, the psalm doesn't say, no, that's never going to happen. No, the whole point is it does happen. Verse 39, when they are diminished, who? The good people, the blessed people, the people that get God's loving kindness. When they're diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. You've got a lot of uh, professors, pastors out there that will tell you poor people by virtue of being poor are the apple of God's eye and rich people are by virtue wicked. That's incorrect. Why is that incorrect? Because that's not the formula. Poverty by itself is not a spiritual badge. And having things is not by itself a sign that you're lost. What God is doing in the formula is creating distress to bring you to turning to him. You can have distress and not turn to him. You're still lost. If the sailors didn't turn to him, they drown. If the people in the desert don't turn to him, they don't get a city. They stay in the wilderness. So it's not by virtue of being lost, by virtue of having a hard time, that you're spiritual or that you have an inside track with the Lord. Only if the pain produces a change in your heart to turn to him rather than resent him. But if you turn to him, he does use the distress to prompt a worship in you that is full of gratitude and thankfulness. And he does this through the irony of reversal. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I came upon this website. I was just kind of Googling around, so forgive me if it's kind of weird. But this uh, website, Unbelievable Facts, each of these things is sourced to something else. That doesn't mean that what it's sourced to is any good. But uh, here, here's a few cases of, of irony. I don't see what year it was, but Philip A. Contos it was a motorcyclist who was riding in a protest against helmet laws. He wanted to protest laws that would require you to wear a helmet. Guess how he died? Flipping over his handlebars without a helmet. There's irony. Another example is uh, that no one, apparently no one knows who invented the fire hydrant because the patent office where that patent for the fire hydrant was held burned to the ground in 1836, destroying all the records. There's irony. Here's another one. Mithridates uh, VI, the king of Pontus, he was so paranoid of being poisoned that he would take small doses of poison all his life to build his immunity against poison. When, uh, when he was defeated by the Romans, he tried to kill himself with poison, but then he couldn't because he was immune. So you, the reversal, the irony. Here's another one. Just the night before his execution, Troy Leon Gregg, who was convicted 
uh, for murder. He escaped uh, a prison in Georgia to escape his execution, which was to be the next day. And when he escaped, he found himself at a bar, got into a fight, and was beaten to death. Still got his execution. All right, one more. This one is, uh, if you've ever, uh, you know, you, you used to put in a video, a DVD, and before the movie would start, it would, it would have this little intro and say, piracy, it's a crime. You might remember that. Well, the music that they used in that intro, they stole. <laughs> and we're subsequently sued for it. I'll just do one more. In 2009, um, Felix Batista, who was, uh, he was an expert in kidnappings, in Mexico kidnappings in particular. He negotiated the release of at least 100 victims. Uh, went missing when he was kidnapped by Mexicans. So here you have these ironies, and the reason why they're, I mean, even though they're tragic, they're kind of funny. It's kind of like, huh, you tried this, but you actually got that. This, this uh, you tried to elevate yourself in this way, but you actually went down the way that you were trying to escape. And that's how God operates throughout Scripture. A couple months ago, I gave away one of the books I gave away, and I forget which lucky brother or sister snatched it, but it's by uh, G.K. Beale called Redemptive Reversals. And that book, he goes through Scripture talking about this exact thing, how God reverses the fortunes of people. That's how he operates. He takes the lowly and he raises them up. He takes the haughty, the proud, the, the triumphant, and he brings them down. You can think of quick examples. You remember... Um, uh, the story of Haman who wanted to uh, kill Mordecai, get the king to kill Mordecai, and he built gallows. He wanted Mordecai to hang so bad, he himself oversaw the building of the gallows with which he would hang Mordecai. But then the king finds out that the Mordecai, saved, Mordecai saved the king's life, and the king found out Haman wants to kill Mordecai. And the king said, hey, are there any gallows nearby? We can hang this dude. And Haman hangs from the gallows that he built himself. The reversal. Someone who was at the top, brought low. Mordecai at the bottom, looking like he's going to be executed, was elevated. You think of um, King David. Jesse has all these strapping sons. They're ready for battle. They know how to fight. And then you have this inexperienced kid out there messing around with the sheep. And who's the one that actually succeeds in battle against Goliath? The kid. Who's the one that actually ascends to the throne? Not the tall guys, the little kid. right? The young guy, the ruddy guy. You can think of uh, the story of um, Absalom, David's son, and was very proud and rebelled against his father, and one of the distinguishing features was his head of hair. I don't know anything about that. But his head of hair, he'd cut it once a year, and it was just lustrous hair that made him beautiful and gorgeous, and everybody liked looking at Absalom. You remember when he's on his horseback running away from his father? His hair gets caught in the oak tree, and he's, he's hanging there. Until they come and impale him, he dies because of his beautiful hair. See, Scripture isn't doing that accidentally. It's like, look at this reversal that happens again and again. Joseph is sold by his brothers and left for dead in a pit. Down in the pit, left for dead. And then they're like, never mind, sell him to Egypt. At Egypt, he rises to the highest office aside from Pharaoh. And then when the famine hits, his brothers come to him for life. 
Brothers left him for dead, down. He goes up and saves his brothers. It's a reversal. Then, of course, you can think of Jesus Christ himself, who is mocked for being a king. They put a crown of thorns on his head. Ha, ha, king. But it's through that torture and that suffering and that death that Jesus Christ secures his kingdom. The gospel is about reversal. Without reversal, we don't have life. Without, without reversal, we don't have God's covenant. God uses reversal to rescue, and that's why we need to embrace our hardships. Embrace them not just by saying, okay, I guess this is just going to have to be my life. No, you embrace them by turning to God. You remember James 4, 6, 1 Peter 5, 5, quote the same verse, their Greek version of Proverbs 3.34. Listen, you're going to know it. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. See, that cuts to the heart of it, not the situation. The situation is what God is using to get you humble. The situation is what people become proud of. You can have a rich person who's humble. You can have a poor person who's arrogant. So it's not God opposes the rich and he exalts the poor. It's what the situation does in your heart because it's not the poor person that turns to God. It's the person who's desperate that turns to God. And if poverty prompts the desperation, great. I know a person in my own family who became desperate through riches. The more awards he got, the more money he made, the, the, his corner office, the, the better car he would purchase, the more expensive his suits, the Rolex watch, the Rolex ring, the more depressed he got, the more he contemplated suicide because none of it was filling him. Those things just made him hungrier. So did riches block him from turning to the Lord? No, they prompted it because for him it prompted what? Distress and desperation. So the response to the sermon today is not to go home and see how much money you have in your account, get scared that you have a lot, get rid of most of it. If you want to do that, if the Lord leads you to that, that's great, but I do think that's missing the point. We come into hardships and distress of all different kinds. It could be a physical ailment. It could be a relational problem. All kinds of things that we experience. It could be financial. But God uses those things to humble us if we would let it. If we let those things humble us to the point where we turn to Him and we ask Him for rescue, then our worship will be filled with thanks and gratitude. Final clarification before we close. I don't think we can really understand this psalm outside of the gospel, outside of Christ's work on our behalf, because without that connection, we can leave here and go, okay, I've got this distress, I'm going to turn to the Lord, and then I'm going to wait for the call from the doctor to tell me, I don't know what happened, but the disease is gone. I want to wait for the call from my and former employer goes, I don't know what I was thinking. I'm a totally idiot. Not only are we going to rehire you, we're going to pay you twice as much. I'm going to wait by the phone. And well, we don't wait by the phone anymore, right? It's just the phone goes with us. Sorry. Uh, we're going to wait for that call. For that person that broke up with us and broke our heart, we're going to wait for that person to call back. I'm like, I'm sorry, let's get married tomorrow. We want the reversal to happen now. And even the Psalms, the wisdom literature, and the Proverbs don't promise that God always reverses the situation right now. But that these situations that we see in Scripture are all pointing to the great reversal in Jesus Christ. That's the one that counts. You might know a Christian who died in their distress 
and they turned to the Lord, how come they died? You might know a non-Christian who didn't turn to the Lord in distress, and they were healed. Well, it's not like the Old Testament authors were just you know, oblivious to those realities. Like, well, wait a minute, we're totally wrong. Let's delete the Psalms. What the psalmist is saying is, you see how God operates in these patterns, sometimes in specific ways? Some sailors do shipwreck that are Christian. Some sailors aren't Christian, they hate God, and they never shipwreck. But what's the point of the psalm? Is the point of the psalm that anytime you're in a ship, and it looks like it's going down, pray to the Lord, and you'll be saved. You'll just, you'll, another ship will come by, or a helicopter will come. No. That's not the promise. They didn't even believe that. What they were looking forward to was the ultimate gathering of people from all time and all places, from all languages, all situations, and all distresses. They'll be gathered to this ultimate land that we talked about when we were wrapping up the book of Numbers, this ultimate inheritance that we come into in Christ. And that might not show up Monday. That might not show up this year. It might, and we should turn to him. It's not like we come in our prayer meetings and we only pray, Lord, come back, and everything else we're not allowed to pray. No, pray that he would remove the disease, change your situation. We can pray that. But sometimes he lets the distress linger because we're not ready for the relief yet, and that's on him. He knows. You know how annoying it is when your kid is like, are we ready? Are we going? Are we this? Are we that? And you're like, be quiet. I will tell you when we're ready. You are too young. And to an experience to decide when we're ready to do this or that. But as the parent, I will tell you when we're ready. And rather than taking four hours to explain to you why I'm going to be ready when I'm ready, why don't you just go ahead and play, do what you're supposed to do, and just trust that I know when I'm ready. Imagine the gap between us and God. He knows when it's time to bring relief. He knows how much distress is too much distress. What he's looking for is for hearts that aren't looking to get out from the distress, but are looking to embrace God himself. And when we do that, he will take care of when he relieves the distress. Right now, or ultimately, when we receive our glorified bodies and enjoy the new earth together with our Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's the pattern that needs to be the pattern of your life. Distress, prompting you to turn to him, which then brings deliverance ultimate, profound deliverance, salvation, freedom in Christ. And forever, we will worship the Lord whose love endures forever. Let's pray.